So let me pray for us as we um, uh, hear from God and as we look at His Word this morning. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the ways in which You are at work in this world. Lord, it is uh, amazing to see how You are giving life to the dead um, all around the world. And God, we do thank you and praise you for using us in receiving glory for your name by um, powerfully converting men and women all across the globe. God, we pray that your gospel will go forth much more and reach peoples that, are, that do not know you, that haven't heard your name. God, we pray that even for this part of the world, for Ohio and the U.S., where so many people, they have heard of Jesus, but they have rejected Jesus, rejected the free gift of salvation that you offer them. We pray that you will open their eyes and you will, we pray that you will use us to do the same. We pray now, Lord, as we turn to your word, um, speak to us powerfully. May the Holy Spirit apply these truths that we are going to hear from your word into our hearts and lives. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so um, a couple of years ago, we had the opportunity to take a group of students to uh, do a short-term mission trip to Lucknow, which is in North India, a um, very unreached part of the world. Um, now, one of the things that we got to do when we were in Lucknow, North India, was um, we got to visit the um, palace of an official, it was an ancient palace of an official who lived a long time ago. And the fascinating thing about this palace was that he had constructed a maze inside his house. Um, who wouldn't like a maze inside their house, right? So the minute we heard about this, we were very excited to go explore this maze. And our tour guide said that the way the maze was constructed was that for every right turn, there would be three wrong turns. Um, and the reason why the owner did that was because it was a clever way for him to hide himself from the thieves and robbers who were very common in those days in uh, Lucknow, North India. So it was very clever. And so we were very excited to go and explore this maze, and we had a tour guide who was very excited to take us there. And um, soon we regretted it. Um, as soon as we entered this maze, we realized we had to climb a lot of stairs, walk through dark, narrow corridors, and we realized that our tour guide has a very cruel sense of humor. He would take us um, uh, round and round, and finally he would turn around and say, we reached the dead end. And um, so after doing this about three or four times, we were beginning to wonder if we were ever going to get out of this maze in Lucknow, North India. And uh, I was terrified because I was given the responsibility of caring for all these students by their parents. And already in my mind, I was crafting the letter that I was going to write their par uh, the parents of all these students. I am sorry that your daughter or your son didn't return from Lucknow, North India, because they were stuck in a maze. Um, anyway, when we finally got out, we were never so glad to be out in the scorching, blistering sun of Lucknow, North India, than that day. Being lost is a terrible experience, <coughs> isn't it? And it is something that is common to everybody, uh, but it doesn't get any easier. Now, the story that we are going to um, read this morning 
is also about a man who is lost. And it is about God who, and what he does to search and save this man who is lost in the story. So if you will turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Let's read. He entered Jericho and was passing through. <coughs> and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, is, he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now the story that we just read happens in the book of Luke towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. And we all know what happens in Jerusalem, don't we? It is there that Jesus was mocked, flogged, and brutally killed on the cross. But that is where he was heading. Now, in this last episode, before he finally reaches Jerusalem, Jesus takes time to stop in the city of Jericho to interact with a man whose name is Zacchaeus. And all this is still about the mission that Jesus has come into this world for. And that mission is, like he says in this passage, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So there are three things or three points that I want us to hang our thoughts on as we look at this text. The first point is we want to see how Jesus seeks and saves. Jesus seeks and saves. The second point is Jesus is received and rejected. And the third point is that Jesus transforms hearts and lives. So Jesus seeks and saves, Jesus received and rejected, and Jesus transforms hearts and lives. Now by the time Jesus has entered Jericho, there is a huge crowd that has kind of gathered around Jesus. He's kind of become a celebrity by now, uh, if you read in the Gospels. And he has done some amazing things. And he has managed to amaze people wherever he has gone. He's healed all kinds of sickness. He's cast out demons. He's even raised the dead. And people are always crowding around Jesus to see what he's going to do next, what he's going to teach next. And people had respected Jesus also at this point. They looked up to him as an important religious figure. Some might even have wondered could this be the Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years? Could this be, these be the signs that we've read in our Old Testament scriptures 
about what the Messiah was going to do. So even in this passage, there is a lot of people who want to be around Jesus. They wanted to see what he was like and what he was going to do and what he was going to teach. Kind of like a celebrity. I don't know if this happens here. But um, in Dubai, when a celebrity walks into a mall, there is uh, a lot of people suddenly gathered around him, even people who don't know who he is, um, just to see him and see uh, what he's going to do. Now, at this point in the story, Luke zooms in on one person in that crowd who is also there to see Jesus, and that man's name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, we are told, was the chief tax collector. Now, if you are familiar with the Gospels, if you have read the Gospels, you have heard this term before, the, chief, uh, the tax collector. Oftentimes, the tax collectors fall into the category that is called the sinners and tax collectors. Um, so, uh, you would, in that society, treat a tax collector like the way you would treat an adulterer or a murderer or a thief or a robber. That was the sort of reputation that a tax collector had. Now, Zacchaeus was not just an ordinary tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. And so just like the other sinners, he too was treated as an outcast in the society in those days. Even religiously speaking, um, they would have been kept from going into the temple to pray, to worship God. They would have been kept from going into the synagogues to read and discuss the scriptures. And any self-respecting Jew, no self-respecting Jew, would have ever associated with such a man. And this is kind of the world that Zacchaeus lived in. And as far as people were concerned, Zacchaeus seemed as far away from God as one can possibly be. Spiritually speaking, in the minds of all the people that were around Zacchaeus in that society, he was lost. Now, I think it's worth taking a moment to just stop and think about what does the Bible say about what does it really mean to be lost? Actually, if you read the Bible, um, in the whole context, it's not just the sinners, it's not just the murderers, the adulterers, the tax collectors of the world today that are lost. In fact, God's Word says that everybody by nature are lost in this world. In fact, it says that's the way we are born. Uh, we come into this world being in that condition and state of lostness. And now, this is not the way that God intended for us to be. This is clearly not the way He created us. Our God, who is holy and loving, made us in His image to be like Him and to be in a perfect, loving relationship with Him. But we rebelled against Him and His authority. And it is on account of our sin that we were separated from God, that we are lost. Isaiah 59, verse 2, the prophet puts it this way, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Now, our lostness just does not mean that we are separated from God in this life. It means that, but it's much more than that. It means that for all of eternity, we are going to be separated from God's love and God's grace. And what it means is that our sin, because of our sin, we deserve to bear God's wrath and condemnation for our sin. And the Bible says that the place that we all deserve to be 
is hell. Unending pain, unending sorrow and suffering for all of eternity. That is what everybody who has sinned in this world on account of this sin deserve by a holy God. What's worse, if there could be something worse, is that we cannot do anything as capable as we think we are to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves or redeem ourselves. As clever as we think we are, we have found no solution in and of ourselves to solve this problem that we face because of our sin. But the amazing thing is that God had a plan for his people who are lost in this world. And in fact, this is the reason that we see Jesus says he has come into the world. He has come to seek and save the lost. So let's see how he does that in Zacchaeus' life. Now coming back to the story, Jesus is walking through Jericho. It seems like he has really no plan to stop anywhere. But when he suddenly comes to the tree that Zacchaeus is sitting in, he decides to stop. Of all the trees he could have stopped at, he purposely chose this one. He looks up directly and Zacchaeus calls him by name. Verse 5, it says, um, calls him Zacchaeus. Now, how did Jesus know his name? Jesus was being very intentional in the way he found Zacchaeus and in the way he called Zacchaeus. Friends, this was no chance encounter. This was no accident. This wasn't Jesus just coming up to the street and saying, oh, I see a man up there. No, this was divine appointment. This was the plan and purpose for which Jesus was in Jericho on that day. And the way that Jesus called Zacchaeus, we, we learn also this is the way that Jesus searches and seeks out those who are his, who are lost in this world. Isn't this very much like what he says that the good shepherd does in John 10 verse 3? Jesus says, the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Kind of like what Jesus does with Zacchaeus in this passage. Now just a few chapters earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus emphasizes this point by giving a few parables. So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd who when he loses one sheep, leaves the other 99 to go searching for that one sheep that was lost. And when he finds it, there is great joy because that one sheep that was lost was very precious to him. In another parable, Jesus tells the story of a woman who has lost a coin and she seeks diligently till she finds it. She does not stop till she, find it, till she finds it. She lights a lamp, sweeps her entire house, and she does not stop till she finds it. Now, the, the, the lesson behind all these parables is Jesus trying to explain to us how God searches and seeks after those who are lost in this world because of how precious they are to him. Friends, even today, God is in the business <coughs> of actively seeking out and searching out those who are his children who are lost in this world. So this should give us great hope as we share the gospel with people who do not know him all around us. Now, I don't know if you ever had this experience, but sometimes I find myself sharing the gospel with someone who seems particularly hard-hearted, who doesn't want to listen to me, and I find myself wondering if there is any hope 
for them to be saved. But look at Zacchaeus. Everybody else had written him off, but God had not given up on him. So let me ask you this question. Are there people in your life that you are tempted to give up on who seems to be hard-hearted to be saved? Maybe are there people that you are, you've been telling about Jesus for years on end, but you've seen no progress whatsoever? Friends, I want to encourage you, take heart, because as we see in this passage, there is no one who is too lost for God to be able to reach and save. Now we see in this passage that Jesus not only seeks Zacchaeus, but the reason why he seeks him is ultimately to save him. So in verse 9, we see Jesus saying that salvation has come to him. So Jesus' desire when he says he wants to go be with Zacchaeus in his home was much more than just to be a friend of Zacchaeus, just to merely associate with a man who is sinful. No, Jesus was going after Zacchaeus' heart. He, his intention was for his soul. So Jesus living in Zacchaeus' home is a picture of what it looks like when someone comes to know Christ in this world. Christ takes up residence in their life and moves in. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now Jesus did something when he went to Zacchaeus that day and he asked him to stay at his house that no other religious figure would have ever done. Maybe a lot of the reputation that Jesus had built up till that point of being an important religious figure might have been destroyed after Jesus did this. But Zacchaeus would have felt loved and accepted for the very first time that day. But even Zacchaeus has no idea at this point the lengths to which Jesus would go to love and save a sinner like him. The ultimate expression of love and fulfillment of God's plan to rescue the lost happened just a few days after the story took place. And it happened on the cross. It was there that Jesus was killed brutally and executed unjustly. It was there that the one who knew no sin became sin itself. It was there on the cross that he bore God's judgment. He bore God's wrath and achieved salvation for sinners like us. And that's not the end of the story. On the third day, he rose again proving to the world that his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God. And now, as a result, sinners like you and me, who were separated from God, who were once lost, who had no hope of reconciliation with the Holy God, were suddenly brought back into the family of God, and we are made sons and daughters in this kingdom. Friends, it is on the cross that we see most clearly displayed God's love for the lost and the work that he has done to secure their salvation. For those of us who are in Christ here this morning, we can take comfort in the fact that Christ has initiated and done everything 
that is required for our salvation. But let's be honest. Sometimes it's very hard to remember this, isn't it? Especially when circumstances in our lives change or situations become difficult. Sometimes when our struggle with sin seems to be too hard. Sometimes when we feel it's hopeless, we can find it hard to find joy in knowing that Christ has done everything for our salvation. But friends, we need only to look at the cross to remember that Christ has done everything to secure our salvation forever, that God loves us now like he loves his own son. So we've seen how Jesus has come into the world to seek and save the lost. We've seen the work that he's done to do that. Now, let's see the different kinds of responses that people have to the work that Jesus has done on the cross. In this passage, I don't know if you noticed, but there are two very different kind of, kinds of responses to Christ. First, Zacchaeus. Notice that when Jesus calls him in verse 6, how he responds to Christ. He hurries down, he receives him, and he receives him gladly. Now, technically, the word faith is not mentioned here in this passage. But we have a picture of what faith looks like. Faith is simply receiving Christ into our lives and receiving God's gift of salvation for us. Now, often people misunderstand faith and they make it out into something that it is not. So many people, at least from where I come from, make faith out to be a kind of work that we do with our own strength, something that we have to muster up. But friends, faith is the exact opposite of work. Faith means just receiving Christ as a free gift that God offers us. Now, notice also the response of the crowd to what Jesus has done in this passage. Just a few moments earlier, they were enamored with Jesus. They couldn't get enough of him. They wanted to be with him all the time. But did you notice in verse 7, they grumble at what Jesus does when Jesus calls Zacchaeus and invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. Why did they grumble? They take issue at the fact that Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So their response shows that they did not get who Jesus has come for in this world. Jesus has repeatedly taught that he has come into this world not for the healthy, but for the sick. He has come not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Their problem was that they could not admit that they were sick too, that they too needed Christ as much as Zacchaeus to save them from their sins. And so in their grumbling, they reject Jesus and they reject the only solution to the problem that they face with God in their lives. So friends, we see that there are only two ways that anybody can respond to Christ. You can either receive him or reject him. There is no other way that we can respond to Christ. So let me venture to say that everybody sitting in this room today fall in one of those two categories. Either you have received Christ into your life or you have rejected Christ into your life. And in John 
chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus says, Whoever believes in him, that is Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. But friends, how wonderful it is for those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus, who have received him. Zacchaeus on that day got far more than he bargained for. He was there just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. He just was there to be able to see Jesus a little more clearly. But you can, all, you can see that already God was at work in his heart, drawing Zacchaeus to himself. Friends, I want to say that just like Zacchaeus sitting on that tree in the story, there might be some of you here this morning who are here just to investigate a little more about Jesus, just to see him a little more clearly, to understand him a little bit better. And I want to say that's a great thing and continue to study more about Jesus, continue to explore who he is. But I also want you to be open to the possibility that God may have bigger plans for you than you know. Perhaps he brought you here this morning to help you see your own lostness, your own sin, and perhaps to see the free gift of salvation that he is offering you in Christ. So if this is you, I want to encourage you to receive what he is offering you by repenting of your sin and by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. So we've seen how Jesus seeks and saves the lost in this world. We've seen how people can respond to Jesus' work in two different ways. And now, lastly, let's see how Jesus transforms hearts and lives. Do you notice the amazing transformation that has happened in Zacchaeus's life in this passage? Check out what he says in verse 8. He says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And notice what Jesus says after Zacchaeus says that in verse 9. He says, Today salvation has come to this house. Now, just to clear things up, we need to ask this question. So does Jesus mean that Zacchaeus was saved on account of what he did? In other words, is God saying, clean up your life, give all you have to the poor, compensate the people that you have hurt, and then you will be saved? Absolutely not. Jesus, when he's saying that, is merely pointing out the reason behind this man's amazing transformation. And the reason is God's incredible salvation that has come into Zacchaeus' life. So the remarkable change that you see in Zacchaeus' life is a fruit of genuine faith, is a product of Holy Spirit's work of regeneration that has happened in Zacchaeus' life. And this is true for any Christian today. Any kind of transformation that happens in a Christian's life happens as a result of God's salvation and conversion that has happened in that person's life. So, friends, know that when Christ saves, it shows. 
Now, notice the kind of transformation that has happened in Zacchaeus' life. He resolves to do two things, and both those things have to do with money. Luke tells us also that Zacchaeus was a rich man. So it's very likely that the biggest idol in Zacchaeus' life was his money. Now, if you flip to the previous chapter, you'll find something really interesting. Luke tells us about another rich man who goes to Jesus seeking for eternal life, but unfortunately, in that story, the man walks away, unwilling to give up his wealth. And Jesus tells us why. In Luke 18, 24 to 25, he says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't sound hard. That sounds impossible. And Jesus continues, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So in other words, it was impossible for any rich man, or for any man for that matter, to give up whatever it is that is the greatest treasure for them in this world and to follow Christ. And in that story, we see how money was the greatest treasure for him. And he was unwilling to part with that in following Christ. But do you notice in this story how Zacchaeus gives away almost everything that he has, even without Jesus asking him to do so? It's clear what has happened. His allegiance has shifted from money being his God to the true and living God in the Bible. And friends, it is no coincidence that these two passages come right next to each other in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is showing us that it takes nothing less than the supernatural, a supernatural act of God, the powerful work of conversion and regeneration to make a rich man or any man give away the greatest treasures in their life and to enter the kingdom of God. And certainly, Zacchaeus didn't do it by himself. This was God doing the impossible. Now let's notice how much Zacchaeus gives away. He says he will give away half of his possessions to the poor. That's a lot of money if you consider him being a rich man. You can imagine the good news uh, that must have reached all the poor people in Jericho that day. There must have been a long line waiting outside Zacchaeus' house to collect their money. But not just that. He doesn't stop there. He decides to pay back with interest all the people that he's defrauded in his life. Now, according to the Levitical law, the requirement was that if you, he only had to pay about 20% back. But he decides to pay back 400% extra. This was, there was no obligation for him to do so. There was no requirement for him to do so. In fact, it's very likely that after this, Zacchaeus probably lost all his wealth. Friends, the change is amazing. Zacchaeus has gone from being greedy to generous, from being selfish to selfless, from living for himself to denying himself for Christ. And this could only happen as a result of Christ's work in his life. 
Now, what's the lesson in this for all of us today? Just to be clear, the point of this is not that God is calling us to give away everything that we have to the poor in this world. It does not necessarily mean that you have to leave your jobs and your career to serve God full-time in ministry. But I do wonder if you find yourself asking the same questions that sometimes, honestly, I ask myself when I'm called to serve, which is, what is the minimum requirement I need to fulfill as a Christian? How much do I need to do so that it'll be enough for me as a Christian when it comes to obedience, when it comes to giving, or when it comes to serving God? Or think about sin. Do you find yourself indulging in the pleasures of this world and asking yourself, how far can I go before it is actually sin? Friends, we should not think of just uh, of our Christian lives of just doing what is enough and nothing more. For extravagant grace calls for extravagant obedience in our lives. And the same grace that was shown to Zacchaeus in his powerful conversion and his powerful transformation, God is showing to each and every one of us sitting in this room who are in Christ. And it is that grace that can lead us to live lives that glorify God and to obey with abandon. Friends, I just want to say that we, Joanna and me, just being here for the last couple of days, have been so encouraged to see the way that you all love each other, the way you serve God, the way you give your money. And I want to just say that it is incredible testimony to God of the work of salvation and conversion that he has done in the lives of so many people in this church. Friends, we need to know that being accepted by the one true God is more precious for a Christian than wealth or gold, and it should be more precious than anything else for us in this world. And when it gets difficult, we need to fix our eyes on Christ and see the incredible work that he has done for our salvation. And we will find that it is not possible for us to be mediocre or stingy with the way we obey Christ and live for him. His grace should lead us to serve selflessly, give generously, love unconditionally. And then we will not be able to see our obedience to Christ as just another chore that we have to fulfill, but we will delight in doing the maximum that we can for our God. And in closing, I just want to say, why shouldn't we? For God has sent his one and only son into our world to search for sinners like us. He died on the cross. He bore our sin. And only because of that, we are found and we are saved. Friends, what a marvelous Savior we have. So let's give up all our lives in worship to him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the amazing love that you have shown us who do not deserve your love, your grace, your acceptance in our life. Lord, 
we need only to look at the cross to see how grievous our sin is, how serious it is, because it took the death of your only beloved son to pay for it. Oh God, we pray, Lord, that you will now give us grace to live lives that resemble that we have been powerfully converted. Help us to glorify Christ wherever we are and help us to give him glory by the way we serve, by the way we love, by the way we give, by the way we talk about him with our friends and neighbors. And as a result, we pray that you will use us to bring many more to salvation and into our family. We ask all this, Lord, in the precious name of Christ. Amen.